Chapter 24 A History of California, the Spanish Period. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 24 The Founding of San Francisco. Anza's successful march of 1774 was the signal for action on Bucareli's part to utilize the newly discovered route to the full. Before he had an opportunity to do so, however, he set on foot numerous other measures to strengthen Alta California within itself and also against the possibility of foreign attack. These plans culminated in his projected occupation of the port of San Francisco and the two rivers, now called Sacramento and San Joaquin, which for many years the Spaniards termed by the single name of the River of San Francisco. Not only did Bucarelli wish to keep these important strategic points from falling into enemy hands, but he thought of using them also as a base for further northwest conquests. The local situation in Alta California, between Anza's departure from that province in the spring of 1774 and his return at the close of 1775, presented the same features as those already described for the period immediately preceding. Conversions of the Indians and increase in domestic animals and crops proceeded at the normal rate, but were by no means great enough to relieve the needs of the province. A start toward white settlement was indeed made, but it was on too small a scale to change the state of affairs materially. In other words, the province lacked precisely those things which it was designed to furnish by use of the Anza route. The beginnings in real colonization just alluded to were provided in connection with the dispatch of Rivera to Monterey to succeed Fagas as governor. Rivera got together 51 persons in Sinaloa, of all ages and both sexes, possibly half a dozen or more families, besides a few unmarried men. Crossing to Baja California, he found difficulty in supplying his small expedition, and therefore went on ahead himself to Alta California in order to send back provisions, an interesting proof of the inadequacy of the peninsula as a source of supply for the northern province. Rivera had been ordered to cooperate with Anza, but when he got to Monterey in May 1774, the Sonora captain was already nearing his presidio on the return journey. On September 26, 1774, the families that Rivera had left behind in Baja California reached San Diego. Thus did the first real settlers come to Alta California, since for the first time white women set foot in the province. Though their whiteness of skin was undoubtedly tinged with Indian red, they were suitable wives for a limited number of soldiery, and by their children were able to contribute yet more to the permanence of the colony. As already mentioned, Bucareli repeatedly gave orders for the exploration and occupation of San Francisco. But it was not until November 1774, when some of the newly arrived colonists got to Monterey, that Rivera felt strong enough in forces to obey the viceroy's commands. Between November 23rd and December 13th, he made a somewhat perfunctory expedition to the Golden Gate, returning with a perfectly good excuse that the season was too far advanced to do anything toward an eventual settlement, owing to the winter rains. In the summer of 1775, Ayala made his thorough exploration of San Francisco Bay. Heseta had also been instructed to enter the port on his voyage down from the north, 
but missed it in the fog. In September 1775, he led a small party overland from Monterey. Having complied with the letter of his instructions, he at once returned. Nothing had been done, therefore, to pick out a site for settlement, erect buildings, or found the two proposed missions. But, thanks to Ayala, there was no longer any doubt about the value of the port itself. Meanwhile, preparations were being made under the guidance of a man who could get things done, the intrepid commander of Tubac. Several months after returning to Tubac from his first expedition, Anza made his way to Mexico City to report to the Viceroy in person. During November and December 1774, he consulted with Bucareli and plans were drawn up and adopted for a second expedition on a large scale designed to meet the needs of Alta California, especially to put the province on a sound and permanent basis and safeguard it from the danger of foreign attack. Anza was to take with him thirty married soldiers and their families, besides ten more soldiers as his personal escort to Alta California and back. Domestic animals of the kind most needed in the province, notably those for breeding purposes and beasts of burden, were to be driven along. The crowning event of the expedition was to be the founding of two missions at San Francisco, for which the married soldiers were to serve as a guard. It was almost a year before Anza's preparations were complete. Meanwhile, Bucarelli was busy with a number of related projects, such as the voyages of 1775 to the northwest coast and the internal problems of the frontier provinces and the two Californias. There is no question, however, but that he regarded Anza's expedition as the most important measure of all, as indeed it was. Anza recruited most of his colonists from families submerged in poverty in Sinaloa. Gathering his company at Orcasitas, he proceeded to Tubac, where on October 23, 1775, the whole force got underway. The roster of the expedition as it left Tubac is worth quoting. Lieutenant Colonel Anza, one. Fathers Font, Garces, and Exarch, three. The purveyor, Mariano Vidal, one. Lieutenant Jose Joaquin Moraga, one. Sergeant Juan Pablo Grijalva, one. Veteran soldiers from the Presidios of Sonora, eight. Recruits, twenty. Veterans from Tubac, Anza's escort, ten. Wives of the soldiers, twenty-nine. Persons of both sexes belonging to the families of the said thirty soldiers and four other families of colonists, 136. Muleteers, 20. Herders of beef cattle, 3. Servants of the fathers, 4. Indian interpreters, 3. Total, 240. Of the 30 soldiers who intended to remain in Alta California, Lieutenant Maraga was the only one unaccompanied by his wife. Anza's care of this mixed assemblage made his expedition one of the most remarkable in the annals of exploration. Starting with a party of 240, he faced the hardships and dangers of the march with such wisdom and courage that he arrived in Alta California with 244. Footnote. Nine persons remained at the Colorado Gila Junction after crossing to the Alta California side. In footnote. No fewer than eight children were born in the course of the expedition, 
three of them prior to the arrival at Tubac. The day of the departure from Tubac, one mother died in childbirth, the only loss of the whole journey, for even the babes in arms survived both the desert and the mountain snows. When one thinks of the scores that lost their lives in the days of 49 over these same trails, Anza's skill as a frontiersman stands revealed. Furthermore, over a thousand animals were included in the expedition. The loss among these was considerable, but enough of them lived to supply Alta California's long-pressing want. A very heavy equipment was taken along, all of it, even the ribbons in the women's hair being provided at government expense. Anza had warned the viceroy that it would be necessary not only to do this, but also to pay the men in clothing and outfit instead of cash, since they were habitual gamblers. Of such seemingly unpromising materials were the men who, certainly without their knowledge, were about to play a part in one of the most important acts on the stage of American history. The prices of their outfits are enough to make one sigh for the good old days. Petticoats, relatively, were expensive. They cost about a dollar fifty or twelve reales each. Footnote. The real, of which there were eight to a peso, is ordinarily reckoned at six and a quarter cents. Since, however, it has seemed best in this volume to calculate the peso as equivalent to a dollar, the real should be counted as twelve and a half cents. In footnote. Women's shoes were seventy-five cents, six reales, and so too women's hats. Each woman got six yards of ribbon at twelve cents a yard. Boys' hats were only fifty cents, four reales apiece, but the girls' hats were the cheapest of all. The girls were supposed to require nothing more than the hair of their heads. And so it went. For men, women, and children, clothing of every sort and kind, arms, riding horses, and rations were provided, and all at what now seems to have been an astonishingly low cost. One undemocratic note is to be observed. The fare of the thirty families was the plainest, and its estimated cost for the entire expedition amounted to only $1,957. On the other hand, Anza and Father Font were to have such edibles as beans, sausage, biscuit, fine chocolate, a barrel of wine, cheese, pepper, saffron, cloves, cinnamon, oil, and vinegar at a cost of $2,232.50, more than the expense for the 30 families. Anza protested against this allotment when it was proposed, but it may be imagined that his objections were somewhat perfunctory, for the arrangement was entirely in accord with the ideas of the day. Footnote. A translation of the document listing the equipment of the expedition is given in Chapman, The Founding of Spanish California, 461-466. to In footnote. Descending the Santa Cruz River to the Gila, Anza went down that stream to its junction with the Colorado. This route was much better than the one he had taken through Papagueria in 1774, but though there was plenty of water, fodder was scarce. After a march of 37 days, he reached the junction, having been delayed en route by sickness of the expeditionaries, especially on occasions when children were born. For, as he put it, it was not possible for the mother to ride on horseback for four or five days thereafter. 
a serious problem presented itself on his arrival at the junction toward the end of november seventeen seventy five anza found that the colorado had deepened at the place where he crossed in seventeen seventy four so that now it was impossible to get over even though it was the season when the river was low it was also impracticable to use rafts for the yumas would have to swim with them in order to guide them and the water was then too cold at any rate not more than one raft a day could be handled and there was danger that it might be upset the yumas knew of no other ford there promised to be a long delay but anza himself made a morning search and found a place where the river divided into three shallow branches it was necessary to clear a way through the thickets however for it was impossible to get by them on horseback this done anza got his entire expedition across after a wait of but a single day the stay among the yumas who were as demonstratively friendly as they had been the year before was signalized by a famous gift to chief palma which bucareli had sent to him in the name of the king this indian's devotion to the spaniards was suitably rewarded at least in the eyes of his tribesmen when he received a sleeveless cloak of blue cloth lined with gold a jacket and trousers of chamois skin two shirts and a cap with a coat of arms like that of the spanish dragoons palma was greatly pleased and reiterated the request that he had made in seventeen seventy four for the sending of spanish missionaries garces and exarch remained among the yumas but their object was an extended exploration of that vicinity rather than the immediate conversion of the indians the three interpreters and four servants of the original roster stayed with them after a stop of a few days anza again went forward leaving a nearby camp at santa olaya on december ninth profiting by his former experience he crossed the colorado desert with comparative ease he split his forces into three divisions with orders to march on different days so that the water holes might have time to refill the third division under moraga alone met with hardships out of the ordinary they encountered intense cold Moraga himself suffered severe pains in the head and ears from which he later became totally deaf. Ahead of them lay the mountains, full of snow to such a degree, said Ansa, that we would not have believed so much could be gathered together. To the people of the warm southland it was indeed a terrifying prospect. On December 19th the dread ascent began. For the next eight days, until they had passed the summit and started down the other side, the march was most difficult and depressing it rained or snowed almost continually and the weather was extremely cold one of the women chose this period to be delivered of a child but after only one day of rest the expedition pushed on though slowly on the twenty sixth they felt an earthquake shock which lasted four minutes it was on the next day however that they went over the summit of the pass and hope revived as the climate and country grew more and more delightful. Without special incident, they now hurried on to San Gabriel, which they reached on January 4, 1776. Without knowing it, Anza and his party had very nearly encountered a danger at least as great as any they had actually experienced, a danger which also threatened the very existence of the Spanish settlements in Alta California the indians of the san diego district had always shown a disposition to be unfriendly to the spaniards 
though they had early learned to have a wholesome respect for Spanish weapons. When at length the missionaries began to be successful in their efforts, the unconverted Indians in the neighborhood, for there were eleven villages which had steadily resisted Christianity, took alarm. They felt that their native customs were doomed unless they could either annihilate or expel the dread invader. Their runners communicated these views to their many kinsmen across the southern end of the province, urging a concerted uprising. Messengers came even to the Yumas, for the San Diego Indians and the many tribes eastward of the Colorado were all members of the same great human family. While some promised support and others were sympathetic, the Yumas would not rise against the Spaniards due to the good treatment they had received at the hands of Anza. The reputation Anza had acquired among the Yumas was probably all that saved him from being attacked on his march to San Gabriel. To the childlike savage, the Spaniards of Anza's following were very different from those who had settled permanently in Alta California. As he neared San Gabriel, however, Anza had noticed some evidences of native unfriendliness. Meanwhile, the unconverted Indians of San Diego, in collusion with mission converts, had gone ahead with their plans, and at last arranged for a simultaneous attack on the mission and Presidio, which were several miles apart, for the night of November 4, 1775. What with missionaries and soldiery, there were twenty-two Spaniards in all, eleven at each place, but four of those at the Presidio were sick, and two others were in the stocks. All were blissfully unaware of the danger, and it seems that no guards were placed. Shortly after midnight, the Spaniards at the mission were aroused by the yells of hundreds of Indians who had already set the building on fire. As the little party tried to escape, they were greeted by clouds of arrows. Father Luis Jaime was seized and dragged away, then beaten to death. Later, his body was found horribly mutilated and pierced by eighteen arrows. The other men took refuge in an adobe storehouse, defending themselves desperately. Not one of them escaped wounds, but they did such execution with their weapons, especially one among their number with a suspiciously Irish-sounding name, Corporal Roca, that at daybreak the Indians withdrew. Father Jaime and one other had been killed, and a third man died of his wounds several days later. Fortunately, the plan to attack the Presidio had miscarried, and the men there must have slept peacefully through the night, for they were unaware of the conflict which had raged so bitterly only a few miles away. The first they knew of it was when the wounded heroes of the mission fight came the next morning to the Presidio. The Indians hesitated to attack again, and thereby lost their chance of success. Soon, Ortega came in with a few soldiers whom he had taken with him to found the new mission at San Juan Capistrano. The founding of that mission was postponed, and Ortega's men remained at San Diego. The situation would still have been serious, but for the arrival of Anza from Sonora. Rivera had only 70 men of his own in the province, and these were scattered among five missions and two presidios over a range of more than 400 miles. The governor hurried south from Monterey, and had good reason to be glad upon his arrival at San Gabriel when he learned that Anza's expedition was approaching that mission. Anza's orders called for him to proceed to San Francisco without delay and found the settlements, 
but he recognized that the San Diego revolt was a superior emergency. Not only did he lend Rivera twenty of his veterans, but even went the length of waiving his superior rank and consenting to accompany Rivera to San Diego and assist him all he could. On January 7, 1776, therefore, the two commanders left San Gabriel with a little force of thirty-five men, not knowing what they might have to encounter. It seemed to them not unlikely that San Diego had been wiped out and the garrison massacred, and that they themselves would have to confront thousands of hostile natives. Fortunately, Ortega had been able to tide over the crisis, and their arrival on January 11th definitely saved the situation. At about the same time, two Spanish ships came in from San Blas, and not long afterward, Bucareli sent 25 more soldiers to Alta California. By this time, the Indians believed that the Spaniards were coming almost from the skies to punish them, and they became afraid. There was no longer any thought of revolt. Indeed, the position of the Spaniards was strengthened by the failure of the San Diego outbreak, for the Indians felt from this time forth that it was impossible to throw out their conquerors. The authorities were generally agreed that Anza's arrival had turned the scale. Providential, Bucarelli called it just as if he had come from heaven. Men of that day knew, too, how grave had been the danger. Latter-day historians have been altogether too prone to regard the hostility to the Spaniards on the part of the California Indians as a matter of small consequence, since no disaster, in fact, ever happened. Its real import appears, however, in the light of such events as the Yuma Massacre of 1781, to be taken up in a later chapter. As compared with the Yuma uprising, that of the San Diego Indians had much fewer difficulties to encounter. The Yumas were a small tribe of about 2,000 and were close to the Spanish frontier where it was possible to assemble hundreds of soldiers at short notice. On the other hand, the San Diego plot involved untold thousands of Indians being virtually a national uprising and owing to the distance from New Spain and the extreme difficulty of maintaining communications, a victory for the Indians would have ended Spanish settlement in Alta California, and the eventual loser would have been the United States. It soon became apparent that there was no further immediate danger at San Diego, wherefore Anza was eager to carry out the Viceroy's orders, which had been given both to him and to Rivera, for the founding of settlements at San Francisco. The dilatory governor could not be moved, so, after a wait of a month, Anza resolved to proceed without him. Leaving twelve of his troopers with Rivera, he departed for San Gabriel. There, he was obliged to despatch Moraga with ten soldiers in pursuit of five deserting muleteers who had run away with some of the best horses of the expedition. Anza then set out with a number of the families up the coast, and after a march of nearly three weeks through driving rains, reached Monterey on March 10th. Moraga, who had successfully apprehended the deserters, came up later with the remainder of the families and their equipment. While he was at Monterey, Anza became very sick, and nothing the doctor could do seemed able to relieve his pain. At length, Anza determined to apply some remedy of his own, and this proved to be helpful, but he was far from well when he announced that he would wait no longer and would go at once to explore the site of San Francisco. Taking only a few men with him, 
and leaving the families at monterey he set out for san francisco on march twenty third upon arrival he made a thoroughgoing survey finding water firewood and timber and marking out the places for the later establishments for a presidio he picked a site with the spaniards called the cantil blanco or white cliff near where fort scott now stands he selected a place for the mission along a little rivulet which he named dolores throes of childbirth of the virgin mary so called because that was the name of the day he visited it in the religious calendar march twenty ninth this was the origin of the name which eventually superseded the one the spaniards first applied to designate the mission though rarely given to enthusiastic comment anza had now seen enough of san francisco to speak of it in the famous port in terms of warmest praise father font was even more expressive of delight the port of san francisco is a marvel of nature he said and may be called the port of ports anza had also been instructed to explore the river of san francisco beyond the point reached by fagas in seventeen seventy two accordingly he marched around the lower end of the bay and proceeded up the eastern shore to the junction of the sacramento and san joaquin rivers and southward up the latter to a considerable distance beyond the place Fagus had visited. From a hill, he clearly discerned that the two rivers had widely separate courses, but was unable to determine the secrets of the great valley which they traversed. Indeed, Hont later recorded his belief that for the most part the valley was a great lake studded with islands. Instead of following the route by which he had come, Anza plunged boldly into the hills and emerged near the present Gilroy Hot Springs, whence he made an easy march to Monterey, arriving there on April 8th. The time had now come for Anza's departure. He had fulfilled the orders of the Viceroy, in so far as he could without the cooperation of Rivera, though for the lack of it he had not been able to establish the settlements at San Francisco. Indeed, prior to Anza's exploration of that port, Rivera had sent orders for the colonists to erect houses for themselves at Monterey and to abandon the projected foundations at San Francisco for that reason. Anza was disappointed, but felt that he could not undertake the work by himself, since Rivera, after all, was governor of the province. So he decided to take his leave. On April 14th, he departed from Monterey to the accompaniment of the tears and lamentations of the settlers who had learned to revere and love him in the course of their long march from Sonora. The next day, Anza received a letter from Rivera, whose party was then approaching Anza's on the way up from San Diego. In this missive, Rivera answered a much earlier letter from Anza and announced abruptly that he would not join him in making the establishments at San Francisco. The messenger told Anza that Rivera was in an evil temper and would not even look at a letter which Anza had just sent to him. A little later, the two parties met. Both leaders saluted, and then, without a word, Rivera put spurs to his horse and rode on. Not long afterward, Rivera sent word to Anza that he was returning and asked him to wait for him at San Luis Obispo so that they might have a conference over the various matters which had been entrusted to them. Anza consented and waited. Two days later, he received word from Rivera postponing the interview until they should reach San Gabriel. Even the patience of a saint might well have been exhausted by this time. Yet, Anza agreed to communicate with Rivera, 
but insisted that it should be in writing. Accordingly, during two days at San Gabriel, they wrote letters back and forth. Afterward, Anza and his escort started back over the trail to Sonora. Crossing the Colorado, the great explorer looked upon Alta California for the last time. Though he did not even suspect it himself, his work, under the guidance of the great viceroy, was to have an enduring importance beyond anything that had ever happened in the history of the Californias. Something yet remained to be accomplished, however, and it fell to the lot of Anza's capable lieutenant, Jose Joaquin Moraga, to do it. With the departure of Anza, Rivera suddenly changed his mind about setting up the establishments at San Francisco, spurred on, no doubt, by the further peremptory orders of the viceroy received it about that time. He therefore sent word from San Diego, whither he had gone, for Moraga to proceed to San Francisco and erect a fort. Moraga got together his families of soldier settlers, and, accompanied by Fathers Palu and Cambon, marched to San Francisco, arriving on June 27th. Only a few days later there occurred, on the opposite coast of North America, the first Fourth of July in United States history, when national independence was proclaimed. At the same time, Moraga and his men, quietly preparing their habitations, were taking an all-important step in the eventual acquisition of the Pacific coast by the descendants of the embattled farmers of the thirteen Atlantic colonies. On September 17th, the Presidio was formally dedicated, and on October 9th there was another solemn function signalizing the founding of the mission of San Francisco de Assis. In January 1777, the second mission was established, this time at Santa Clara, near the present city of San Jose. Thus had the great port been occupied, and the vitally needed settlers, with their equally needed herds of domestic animals, were now in Alta California to stay. For the first time, it was possible to say that the province had been placed on a permanent basis. There was no longer any likelihood that it would be abandoned and left open to another power. Two men had contributed more than any others to bring this about. One of them was the gallant ex-captain of Tubac. As the successful leader of the first party of settlers to the coast, says a recent historian, Anza's position is unique. Only a man of splendid ability and courage and sublime self-confidence could have sustained the fainting hearts of the timid women and children, encouraged them to endure the privations of the desert, or to face the terrors they thought they saw in the snow-covered summits of the San Jacinto Mountains, and the still greater terrors their fancies pictured in the far northern country to which they were going. We may find here and there a figure among the half-forgotten heroes who led their straggling immigrants across the plains and through the mountains after 1842 that deserves to rank with them, but we shall look in vain for any in the Spanish history of the coast, unless we turn back to that of Juan Rodriguez Cabrillo with his broken arm, holding his scurvy-stricken sailors to the work of examining the wintry coast southward from Cape Mendocino to his grave in Santa Barbara Islands, and with his latest breath admonishing his successor not to give up the work. Yet back of Anza was that other great figure, Antonio Bucareli. The Anza expeditions had formed only the most important links in the chain of the Viceroy's plans. He contemplated yet other action which would have developed Alta California still further and might have saved it for Hispanic America 
though not for Spain, as surely as his achievements down to 1776 had prevented its eventual conquest by England. Fortunately for the United States, his hand was removed from the control of frontier affairs late in 1776, just when he was ready to go ahead. Thus, the year 1776 marked the culminating point in the Spanish conquest of Alta California. It remains to explain just why the opportunity created by Bucareli was lost. End of chapter 24